0: Welcome to Fast Asleep. Thank you for giving us your time each week. In return, well, we always try to tuck you in with a truly worthwhile experience. And you know what? We're feeling pretty strong about your experience today. Oh yeah, we even had a contentious meeting about it here at Fast Asleep. And, well, we finally put our concerns aside about today's author, Anton Chekhov. Yeah, we heard words like stodgy and wooden, tedious. No, none of those apply. Then we heard Russian, especially now. Okay, fine, fine. Let's, let's think about all this. Let's start with that Russian part. Anton Chekhov lived long before any character named Putin, so we can't blame him for that. And as for that stodgy, wooden, tedious part, you know there's a reason why Anton Chekhov is still considered to be one of the greatest writers of all time. His works, they're not tedious, they're very relatable, and you'll know what I mean if you don't already in a few moments. His plays are classics. And those of you who know The Seagull and The Cherry Orchard, you know they're not complex. They invite the audience in. Easy to follow. Oh, and they're known for their haunting atmosphere. And Anton Chekhov's short stories are the same. He changed the modern short story. Nobel Prize winner Leo Tolstoy was a very early admirer of these, and he he called them first quality. So, all the questions are answered, except one. How's your Russian? I mean, if I were to read this in Russian to you, I mean, that's okay. That's silly. You're right. I'm kidding. The story has been translated by Ivy Litvinov, an English-Russian writer and translator and wife of a once-Soviet diplomat. So we don't need to worry about that. And next, it's February. A time for romance. So we put romance and Chekhov together, and you know what we came up with? Just what is said to be one of the greatest short stories ever written. Uh Uh-huh. And the subject matter, it doesn't matter where you're from, everybody learns. Everybody loves to learn about a deceiving husband who is finally brought to his knees by love. So enough of all this, I know, I know. Let's tuck in, everybody, for Anton Chekhov's The Lady with a Dog. Part One People were telling one another that a newcomer had been seen on the promenade, a lady with a dog. Mitri Mitrich Gurov had been a fortnight in Yalta, and was accustomed to its ways and he too had begun to take an interest in fresh arrivals. From his seat in Vernay's outdoor café he caught sight of a young woman in a toque, a small hat, passing along the promenade. She was fair and not very tall. After her trotted a white Pomeranian. Later, he encountered her in the municipal park and in the square several times a day. She was always alone, wearing the same toque, and the Pomeranian always trotted at her side. Nobody knew who she was, and people referred to her simply as the lady with the dog. Hmm. If she's here without her husband and without any friends thought Gurov. It wouldn't be a bad idea to make her acquaintance. He was not yet 40, but he had a 12-year-old daughter and two schoolboy sons. He had been talked into marrying in his second year at college, and his wife now looked nearly twice as old as he was. She was a tall, black-browed woman, erect, dignified, Imposing, and as she said of herself, a thinker. She was a great reader, omitted the hard sign at the end of words in her letters, and called her husband Dimitri instead of Mitri. And though he secretly considered her shallow, narrow-minded, and dowdy, he stood in awe of her and disliked being at home. It was long since he had first begun deceiving her and he was now constantly unfaithful to her and this was no doubt why he spoke slidingly of women to whom he referred as the lower race. He considered that the ample lessons he had received from bitter experience entitled him to call them whatever he liked. But without this lower race, he could not have existed a single day. He was bored and ill at ease in the company of men with whom he was always cold and reserved, but felt quite at home among women and knew exactly what to say to them and how to behave. He could even be silent in their company without feeling the slightest awkwardness, there was an elusive charm in his appearance and disposition which attracted women and caught their sympathies. He knew this and was himself attracted to them by some invisible force. Repeated and bitter experience had taught him that, well, every fresh intimacy, while at first introducing such pleasant variety into everyday life and offering itself as a charming light adventure, uh, inevitably developed among decent people, especially in Moscow where they are so irresolute and slow to move, into a problem of excessive complication leading to an intolerably irksome situation. (laughs) But every time he encountered an attractive woman, he forgot all about this experience. The desire for life surged up in him and everything suddenly seemed simple and amusing. One evening then, While he was dining at the restaurant in the park, the lady in the toque came strolling up and took a seat at a neighboring table. Her expression, gait, dress, coiffure, all told him that she was from the upper classes, that she was married, that she was in Yalta for the first time alone. And bored. The accounts of laxity of morals among visitors to Yalta are greatly exaggerated, and he paid no heed to them, knowing that for the most part they were invented by people who would gladly have transgressed themselves had they known how to set about it. But when the lady sat down at a neighboring table a few yards away from him, These stories of easy conquests, of excursions to the mountains, came back to him, and the seductive idea of a brisk, transitory liaison, an affair with a woman whose very name he did not know, suddenly took possession of his mind. He snapped his fingers. "'at the Pomeranian, and when it trotted up to him, "'shook his forefinger at it. "'The Pomeranian growled. "'Guroff shook his finger again. "'The lady glanced at him and instantly lowered her eyes. "'He doesn't bite,' she said, and blushed. "'May I give him a bone?' he asked, "'and on her nod of consent added in friendly tones.' Have you been long in Yalta? Uh, About uh, five days. Oh, and I am dragging out my second week here. Neither spoke for a few minutes. The days pass quickly, and yet one is so bored here, she said, not looking at him. Well, it's the thing to say, it's boring here. People never complain of boredom in godforsaken holes like Believ or Shestra. But uh, when they get here, it's, oh, the dullness, oh, the dust. <laughs> you'd, you'd think they'd come from Grenada, to say the least of it. She laughed. Then they both went on eating in silence like complete strangers. But After dinner, they left the restaurant together and embarked upon the light, jesting talk of people, free and contented, for whom it is all the same where they go or what they talk about. They strolled along, remarking on the strange light over the sea. The water was a warm, tender purple, The moonlight lay on its surface in a golden strip. They said how close it was after the hot day. Gurov told her he was from Moscow, that he was really a philologist, one who studies the histories of languages, but worked in a bank. That he had at one time trained himself to sing in a private opera company, but had given up the idea, that he owned two houses in Moscow, and, well, from her, he learned that she had grown up in Petersburg, but had got married in the town of S, where she had been living two years, that she would stay another month in Yalta, and that perhaps her husband, who also needed a rest, would join her. She was quite unable to explain whether her husband was a member of the Gubernia Council or on the board of the Zemstvo, and was greatly amused at herself for this. Further, Gurov learned that her name was Anna Sergeyevna, Back in his own room, he thought about her and felt sure he would meet her the next day. (laughs) It was inevitable. As he went to bed, he reminded himself that only a very short time ago, she had been a schoolgirl like his own daughter, learning her lessons. He remembered how much there was of shyness and constraint in her laughter, in her way of conversing with a stranger. It was probably the first time in her life that she found herself alone and in a situation in which men could follow her and watch her and speak to her all the time with a secret aim. She could not Fail to divine. He recalled her slender, delicate neck, her fine gray eyes. And yet, there's something pathetic about her, he thought to himself as he fell asleep. <laughs> two. A week had passed since the beginning of their acquaintance. It was a holiday. Indoors it was stuffy, but the dust rose in clouds out of doors and people's hats blew off. It was a thirsty day and Gurov kept going to the outdoor cafe for fruit drinks and ices to offer Anna Sergeyevna. The heat was overpowering. In the evening, when the wind had dropped, they walked to the pier to see the steamer in. There were a great many people strolling about the landing place. Some, bunches of flowers in their hands, were meeting friends. Two peculiarities of the smart Yalta crowd stood out distinctly. The elderly ladies all tried to dress very young, and there seemed to be an inordinate number of generals about. Owing to the roughness of the sea, the steamer arrived late, after the sun had gone down and it had to maneuver for some time before it could get alongside the pier. Anna Sergeyevna scanned the steamer and passengers through her lorgnette. Opera glasses with a handle. As if looking for someone, she knew, and when she turned to Gurov, her eyes were glistening. She talked a great deal, firing off abrupt questions and forgetting immediately what it was she had wanted to know, and then, oh, she lost her lorgnette in the crush. The smart crowd began dispersing features could no longer be made out. The wind had quite dropped, and Gurov and Anna Sergeyevna stood there, as if waiting for someone else to come off the steamer. Anna Sergeyevna had fallen silent, every now and then smelling her flowers, but not looking at Gurov. Well, it's turning out a fine evening, he said, What shall we do? We might go for a drive. She made no reply. He looked steadily at her and suddenly took her in his arms and kissed her lips and the fragrance and dampness of the flowers closed round him. Oh, but the next moment he looked behind him in alarm Had anyone seen them? Let's go to your room, he murmured. And they walked off together very quickly. Her room was stuffy and smelt of some scent she had bought in the Japanese shop. Gurov looked at her, thinking to himself, (laughs) how full of strange encounters life is. Now he could remember carefree good-natured women who were exhilarated by love-making and grateful to him for the happiness he gave them however short-lived and there had been others his wife among them whose caresses were insincere affected hysterical mixed up with a great deal of quite unnecessary talk and whose expression seemed to say that all this was not just love making or passion but something much more significant and then there had been two or three beautiful cold women over whose features flitted a, a predatory expression Betraying a determination to wring from life More than it could give Women no longer in their first youth Capricious, irrational Despotic, oh, brainless And when Gurov had cooled to these Their beauty aroused in him Nothing but repulsion and the lace trimming on their underclothes reminded him of fish scales. But here, the timidity and awkwardness of youth and inexperience were still apparent, and there was a feeling of embarrassment in the atmosphere, as if someone had just knocked at the door. Anna Sergeyevna, The lady with the dog seemed to regard the affair as something very special, very serious, but as if she had become a fallen woman. An attitude he found odd and disconcerting. Her features lengthened and drooped and her long hair hung mournfully on either side of her face. She assumed a pose of dismal meditation, like a repentant sinner in some classical painting. It isn't right, she said. You will never respect me any more." On the table was a watermelon. Goddard cut himself a slice from it and began slowly eating it. At least half an hour passed in silence. Anna Sergeyevna was very touching, revealing the purity of a decent, naive woman who had seen very little of life. The solitary candle burning on the table scarcely lit up her face, but, oh, it was obvious that her heart was heavy. Why should I stop respecting you? asked Goroff. You don't know what you're saying. May God forgive me, she exclaimed, and her eyes filled with tears. It's terrible. Oh, no need to seek to justify yourself. How can I justify myself? I am a wicked fallen woman. I despise myself and have not the least thought of self-justification. It isn't my husband I have deceived, it's myself. And not only now, I have been deceiving myself for ever so long. My husband is no doubt an honest, worthy man, but he's a flunky. I was only 20 when I married him, And I was devoured by curiosity. I wanted something higher. I told myself that there must be a different kind of life. I wanted to live. Mm, To live. I was burning with curiosity. Oh, you'll never understand that. But I swear to God, I, I, I could no longer control myself. Nothing could hold me back. I told my husband I was ill. And I came here, and I started going about like one possessed, like a madwoman. Oh, and now, I have become an ordinary, worthless woman, and everyone has the right to despise me. Gurov listened to her, bored to death, the naive accents. The remorse, oh, all was so unexpected, so out of place. But for the tears in her eyes, she might have been jesting or play-acting. I, I don't understand, he said gently. What is it you want? She hid her face against his breast and pressed closer to him. Do believe me? I implore you to believe me, she said. I love all that is honest and pure in life. Vice is revolting to me. I don't know what I'm doing. The common people say they are snared by the devil and... Well, now I can say I've been snared by the devil too. Oh, come, come, he murmured he gazed into her fixed, terrified eyes, kissed her and soothed her with gentle, affectionate words. And gradually, she calmed down and regained her cheerfulness. (laughs) Soon, they were laughing together again. When, a little later, they went out, there was not a soul on the promenade, the town and its cypresses looked dead. But the sea was still roaring as it dashed against the beach. A solitary fishing boat tossed on the waves, its lamp blinking sleepily. They found a droshky, a carriage, and drove to Orianda. I discovered your name in the hall just now, said Gurov, written up on the board. Von Dideritz? Is your husband a German? No, his grandfather was, I think. But he belongs to the Orthodox Church himself. When they got out of the droschke at Orionda, they sat down on a bench not far from the church and looked down at the sea without talking. Yalta could be dimly discerned through the morning mist and white clouds rested motionless on the summits of the mountains. Not a leaf stirred. The grasshoppers chirruped, and the monotonous, hollow roar of the sea came up to them, speaking of peace, of the eternal sleep lying in wait for us all. Oh, the sea had roared like this, long, before there was any Yalta or Orianda. And it was roaring now and would go on roaring just as indifferently and hollowly when we had passed away. And it may be that in this continuity, this utter indifference to life and death, lies the secret of of our ultimate salvation of the stream of life on our planet and of its never-ceasing movement towards perfection. Side by side with a young woman who looked so exquisite in the early light, soothed and enchanted by the sight of all this magical beauty, sea, mountains, clouds, oh, and the vast expanse of the sky. Gurov told himself that when you came to think of it, everything in the world is beautiful, really, everything, but our own thoughts and actions when we lose sight of the higher aims of life and of our dignity as human beings. Someone approached them, a watchman probably, looked at them and went away and there was something mysterious and beautiful even in this. The steamer from Feodosia could be seen coming towards the pier, lit up by the dawn, its lamps out. Oh, there's dew on the grass, said Anna Sergeyevna, breaking the silence. Yes, time to go home. They went back to town. After this... They met every day at noon on the promenade, lunching and dining together, going for walks, and admiring the sea. She complained of sleeplessness, of palpitations, asked the same questions over and over again, alternately surrendering to jealousy and the fear that he'd. Not Did not really respect her. And often, when there was nobody in sight in the square or the park, he would draw her to him and kiss her passionately. The utter idleness, these kisses in broad daylight, accompanied by furtive glances, and the fear of discovery, the heat, The smell of the sea and the idle, smart, well-fed people, continually crossing their field of vision, seemed to have given him a new lease on life. He told Anna Sergeyevna she was beautiful and seductive, made love to her with impetuous passion, and never left her side while she was always pensive, always trying to force from him the admission that he did not respect her and that he did not love her a bit and considered her just an ordinary woman. (laughs) Almost every night they drove out of town to Orianda, the waterfall, or well, some other beauty spot. And these excursions were invariably a success, each contributing fresh impressions of majestic beauty. All this time, they kept expecting her husband to arrive, but a letter came in which he told his wife that he was having trouble with his eyes, and implored her to come home as soon as possible. Anna Sergeyevna made hasty preparations for leaving. It's a good thing I'm going, she said to Gurov. It's the intervention of fate. She left Yalta in a carriage, and he went with her. As far as the railway station, the drive took nearly a whole day. When she got into the express train, after the second bell had been rung, she said, "'Let me have one more look at you. "'One last look. "'That's right.' "'She did not weep, but was mournful, "'and seemed ill, the muscles of her cheeks twitching. "'I shall think of you. "'I shall think of you all the time.' she said. God bless you. Think kindly of me. We are parting forever. It must be so, because we we ought never to have met. Goodbye. God bless you. The train steamed rapidly out of the station, its lights soon disappearing. And a minute later, even the sound it made was silenced as if everything were conspiring to bring this sweet oblivion this madness to an end as quickly as possible and Godov standing alone on the platform and gazing into the dark distance listened to the shrilling of the grasshoppers and the humming of the telegraph wires with a feeling that he had only just waked up. And he told himself that this had been just one more of the many adventures in his life, and that it, too, was over, leaving nothing but a memory. He was moved and sad and felt a slight remorse. After all, this young woman, whom he would never again see... Uh, had not been really happy with him. He had been friendly and affectionate with her, but in his whole behavior, in the tones of his voice, in his very caresses, there had been a shade of irony. Uh, The insulting indulgence of the fortunate male, who was, moreover, almost twice her age. She had insisted in calling him good, remarkable, high-minded. Evidently, he had appeared to her different from his real self. In a word, he had, involuntarily, deceived her. There was an autumnal feeling in the air, and the evening was chilly. Ah, it's time for me to be going north, too, thought Gordov as he walked away from the platform. High time. Part Three When he got back to Moscow, it was beginning to look like winter. The stoves were heated every day, and it was still dark when the children got up to go to school and drank their tea so that the nurse had to light the lamp for a short time. Frost had set in. When the first snow falls and one goes for one's first sleigh ride, oh, it is pleasant to see the white ground, the white roofs. One breathes freely and lightly and remembers the days of one's youth. The ancient lime trees and birches, white with rime, have a good-natured look. They are closer to the heart than cypresses and palms, and beneath their branches one is no longer haunted by the memory of mountains and the sea. Gurov had always lived in Moscow, and he returned to Moscow on a fine, frosty day. And when he put on his fur-lined overcoat and thick gloves and sauntered down Petrovka Street, and when on Saturday evening he heard the church bells ringing, his recent journey and the places he had visited ah, lost their charm for him he became gradually immersed in Moscow life, reading with avidity three newspapers a day, while declaring, oh, he never read Moscow newspapers on principle. Once more, he was caught up in a whirl of restaurants, clubs, banquets, and celebrations. Once more, glowed with the flattering consciousness that well-known lawyers and actors came to his house that he played cards in the medical club opposite a professor he had believed that in a month's time anna sergeyevna would be nothing but a wistful memory and that hereafter with her wistful smile she would only occasionally appear to him in dreams like others before her but (laughs) the month was now well over and winter was in full swing and all was as clear in his memory as if he had only parted with Anna Sergeyevna the day before and his recollections grew ever more insistent When the voices of his children at their lessons reached him in his study through the evening stillness, when he heard a song or the sounds of a musical box in a restaurant, when the wind howled in the chimney, it all came back to him. Early morning on the pier, the misty mountains, the steamer from Theodosia, the kisses. He would pace up and down his room for a long time smiling at his memories and then memory turned into dreaming and what had happened mingled in his imagination with what was going to happen. Anna Sergeyevna she did not come to him in his dreams. She accompanied him everywhere like his shadow following him everywhere he went. When he closed his eyes, she seemed to stand before him in the flesh, oh, still lovelier, younger, tenderer, than she had really been. And looking back, oh, he saw himself, too, as better than he had been in Yalta. In the evenings, she looked out at him from the bookshelves, the fireplace, the corner. He could hear her breathing, the sweet rustle of her skirts. In the streets, he followed women with his eyes to see if there were any like her. He began to feel an overwhelming desire to share his memories with someone, but he could not speak of his love at home And outside his home, who was there for him to confide in? Oh, not the tenants living in his house, and certainly not his colleagues at the bank. And what was there to tell? Was it love that he felt? Had there been anything exquisite, poetic, anything instructive? or even amusing about his relations with Anna Sergeyevna. He had to content himself with uttering vague generalizations about love and women, and nobody guessed what he meant, though his wife's dark eyebrows twitched as she said, the role of a coxcomb doesn't suit you a bit, Dimitri. One evening, leaving the medical club with one of his card partners, a government official, he could not refrain from remarking, Oh, if you only knew what a charming woman I met in Yalta. Well, the official got into his sleigh, and just before driving off, turned and called out, Mitri Mitrice. Yes, you were quite right, you know. Oh, the sturgeon, it it was just a little off. Oh, these words. In themselves, so commonplace. And for some reason, infuriated Gurov, Seemed to him humiliating, gross. What savage manners. What people. What wasted evenings. And what tedious, empty days! Ah, frantic card-playing, gluttony, drunkenness, perpetual talk, always about the same thing. The greater part of one's time and energy went on business that was no use to anyone, and on discussing the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, and there was nothing to show for it, but a stunted earthbound existence and a round of trivialities. And there was nowhere to escape to. You might as well be in a madhouse or a convict settlement. Gurov Lay awake all night raging and went about the whole of the next day with a headache. He slept badly on the succeeding nights too sitting up in bed, thinking or pacing the floor of his room. He was sick of his children, sick of the bank, felt not the slightest desire to go anywhere or talk about anything. When the Christmas holidays came, he packed his things, telling his wife he had to go to Petersburg in the interest of a certain young man and he set off for the town of S. To what end? He hardly knew himself. He only knew that he must see Anna Sergeyevna, must speak to her, arrange a meeting if possible. He arrived at S., "'in the morning and engaged the best room in the hotel, "'which had a carpet of gray military frieze "'and a dusty inkpot on the table "'surmounted by a headless rider "'holding his hat in his raised hand. "'The hall porter told him what he wanted to know. "'Von Dideritz had a house of his own "'in Starogoncharnaya Street.' It wasn't far from the hotel. He lived on a grand scale, luxuriously, kept carriage horses. The whole town knew him. The hall porter pronounced the name Dreiteritz. Gurov strolled over to Starogon Street and discovered the house. In front of it was a long gray fence with inverted nails hammered into the tops of the palings. Oh, with a fence like that, well, that that's enough to make anyone want to run away, thought Gurov, looking at the windows of the house and the fence. He reasoned that since it was a holiday, her husband would probably be at home, In any case, it would be tactless to embarrass her by calling at the house and a note might fall into the hands of the husband and bring about catastrophe. The best thing would be to wait about on the chance of seeing her. And he walked up and down the street hovering In the vicinity of the fence, watching for his chance, a beggar entered the gate, only to be attacked by dogs. Then, an hour later, the faint, vague sounds of a piano reached his ears. That would be Anna Sergeyevna playing. Suddenly, the front door opened, and an old woman came out followed by a familiar white Pomeranian. Gurov. Gurov tried to call to it, but his heart beat violently and in his agitation, oh, he could not remember its name. He walked on, hating the gray fence more and more, and now ready to tell himself irately that Anna Sergeyevna had forgotten him had already perhaps found a distraction in another what could be more natural in a young woman who had to look at this accursed fence from morning to night oh, he went back to his hotel and sat on the sofa in his room for some time and knowing not what to do he ordered dinner and after dinner he had a long sleep Oh, what a foolish, restless business, he thought, waking up and looking towards the dark window panes. It was was evening by now. Well, I've had my sleep out, and what am I to do in the night? He sat up in bed. Covered by the cheap gray quilt which reminded him of a hospital blanket and in his vexation he fell to taunting himself. You and your lady with a dog. Oh yeah, there's adventure for you. See what you get for your pains. On his arrival at the station that morning, huh, he had noticed a poster announcing in enormous letters the first Performance at the local theater of the Geisha. Remembering this, he got up and made for the theater. It's highly probable that she goes to first nights, he told himself. The theater was full. It was a typical provincial theater with a mist collecting over the chandeliers and the crowd in the gallery fidgeting noisily. In the first row of the stalls, the local dandies stood, waiting for the curtain to go up, their hands clasped behind them. There, in the front seat of the governor's box, sat the governor's daughter, wearing a boa. The governor himself hiding modestly behind the drapes, so that only his hands were visible. The curtain stirred. The orchestra took a long time tuning up their instruments. Gurov's eyes roamed eagerly over the audience as they filed in and occupied their seats. Anna Sergeyevna came in too. She seated herself in the third row of the stalls, and when Gurov's glance fell on her, his heart seemed to stop. And he knew in a flash that the whole world contained no one nearer or dearer to him. No one more important to his happiness. (laughs) This little woman, lost in the provincial crowd, in no way remarkable, holding a silly lorgnette in her hand, now. Filled his whole life was his grief, his joy, all that he desired. Lulled by the sounds coming from the wretched orchestra with its feeble, amateurish violinists, he thought how beautiful she was. Thought and dreamed. Anna Sergeyevna was accompanied by a tall, round-shouldered young man with small whiskers who nodded at every step before taking the seat beside her and seemed to be continually bowing to someone. This must be her husband, whom in a fit of bitterness at Yalta she had called a flunkey. And there really was something of the lackey's servility in his lanky figure, his side-wick whiskers, and the little bald spot on the top of his head. And he smiled sweetly. And the badge of some scientific society gleaming in his buttonhole was like the number on a footman's livery. The husband... "'went out to smoke in the first interval, "'and she was left alone in her seat. "'Gurov, who had taken a seat in the stalls, "'went up to her and said in a trembling voice "'with a forced smile, "'How do you do?' "'She glanced up at him and turned pale, "'then looked at him again in alarm, "'unable to believe her eyes.' squeezing her fan and lorgnette in one hand evidently struggling to overcome a feeling of faintness neither of them said a word she sat there and he stood there disconcerted by her embarrassment and not daring to sit down the violins and flutes sang out as they were tuned And there was a tense sensation in the atmosphere, as if they were being watched from all the boxes. At last, she got up and moved rapidly towards one of the exits. He followed her, and uh, they wandered aimlessly. Along corridors, up and down stairs, figures flashed by in the uniforms of legal officials, high school teachers, and civil servants, all wearing badges. Ladies, coats hanging from pegs, flashed by. There was a sharp draft, bringing with it an odor of cigarette stubs. And Gurov, whose heart was beating violently, thought, "'Ah!' What on earth are all these people and this orchestra for? The next minute, he suddenly remembered how, after seeing Anna Sergeyevna off that evening at the station, he had told himself that all was over and they would never meet again. And how far away the end seemed to be now. She stopped. "'on a dark, narrow staircase, "'over which was a notice bearing the inscription "'To the upper circle. "'How you frightened me,' she said, "'breathing heavily, still pale and half-stunned. "'Oh, how you frightened me! I'm almost dead! "'Why did you come? Why? "'But Anna he said in low, hasty tones. But Anna, try to understand. Do try. She cast him a glance of fear, entreaty, love, and then gazed at him steadily as if to fix his features firmly in her memory. I've been so unhappy. She continued, taking no notice of his words. I could think of nothing but you the whole time. I lived on the thoughts of you. I tried to forget. Oh, why? Why did you come? On the landing above them were two schoolboys smoking and looking down. But Gurov did not care and drawing Anna Sergeyevna, towards him, began kissing her face, her lips, her hands. What are you doing? Oh, what are you doing? She said in horror, drawing back. We have both gone mad. Go away this very night, this moment. Oh, by all that is sacred, I implore you. Oh, somebody is coming. Someone was ascending the stairs. You must go away, went on Anna Sergeyevna in a whisper. Do you hear me, Dmitri Dmitrich? I, I will come to you in Moscow. I have never been happy. I am unhappy now, and I shall never be happy. Never. Do not make me suffer still more. I will. I will, I will come to you in Moscow, I swear it. And now, we must part. Oh, my dear one, oh, my kind one, my darling. We must part. She pressed his hand and hurried down the stairs. Looking back at him continually, and her eyes showed. That she was, in truth, unhappy, Gurov stood where he was for a short time, listening, and when all was quiet, went to look for his coat and left the theatre. and Anna Sergeyevna began going to Moscow to see him every two or three months she left the town of S telling her husband that she was going to consult a specialist on female diseases and her husband believed her and did not believe her. In Moscow, she always stayed at the Slavyansky Bazaar, sending a man in a red cap to Gurov the moment she arrived. Gurov went to her, and no one in Moscow knew anything about it. One winter morning he went to see her as usual. The messenger had been to him the evening before, but had not found him at home. His daughter was with him, for her school was on the way, and he thought, well, he might as well see her to it. It is three degrees above zero, said Gurov to his daughter, and yet it is snowing. You see, it's only... Above zero, close to the ground. The temperature in the upper layers of the atmosphere is quite different. Why doesn't it ever thunder in winter, Papa? Oh, he explained this, too. As he was speaking, he kept reminding himself that he was going to a rendezvous and that not a living soul knew about it, or probably ever would. Ah, he led a double life one in public, in the sight of all whom it concerned, full of conventional truth and conventional deception, exactly like the lives of his friends and acquaintances. And there was another which flowed in secret. And owing to some strange, possibly quite accidental chain of circumstances, everything that was important, interesting, essential, everything about which he was sincere and never deceived himself, everything that composed the kernel of his life went on in secret, while everything that was false in him, everything that composed the husk in which he hid himself, and the truth which was in him. His work at the bank, discussions at the club, his lower race, his attendance at anniversary celebrations with his wife was on the surface. He began to judge others by himself, no longer believing what he saw, and always assuming that the real the only interesting life of every individual goes on under cover of night secretly. Every individual existence revolves around mystery. And perhaps that is the chief reason that all cultivated individuals insisted so strongly on the respect due to personal secrets. After leaving his daughter at the door of her school, Gurov set off for the Slavyansky Bazaar. Taking off his overcoat in the lobby, he went upstairs and knocked softly on the door. Anna Sergeyevna, wearing the great dress he liked most, exhausted by her journey and by suspense, had been expecting him since the evening before. She was pale and looked at him without smiling, but was in his arms almost before he was fairly in the room. Their kiss was lingering, prolonged, as if they had not met for years. Well, how are you? he asked. Anything new? Wait, I'll tell you in a minute. I can't. She could not speak because she was crying. Turning away, she held her handkerchief to her eyes. I'll wait till she's had her cry out, he thought, and sank into a chair. Oh, he rang for tea, and a little later while he was drinking it, she was still standing there, her face at the window. She wept from emotion from her bitter consciousness of the sadness of their life. They could only see one another in secret, hiding from people as if they were thieves. Was not their life a broken one? Oh, don't cry, he said. It was quite obvious to him that this love of theirs would not soon come to an end, and that no one could say when this end would be. Anna Sergeyevna loved him ever more fondly, worshipped him, and there would have been no point in telling her that one day it must end. Indeed, she would not have believed him. He moved over and took her by the shoulders, intending to fondle her with light words, but Suddenly, he caught sight of himself in the looking glass. Uh, his hair was already beginning to turn gray. It struck him as strange that he should have aged so much in the last few years. The shoulders on which his hands lay were warm and quivering. He felt a pity for this life, still so warm. "'and exquisite, but probably soon to fade and droop like his own. "'Why did she love him so? "'Women had always believed him different from what he really was "'and had loved in him, not himself, "'but the man their imagination pictured him, "'a man they had sought for eagerly all their lives.' And afterwards, when they discovered their mistake, they went on loving him just the same. And not one of them had ever been happy with him. Time had passed. He had met one woman after another, become intimate with each, parted with each, but had never loved Oh, there had been all sorts of things between them, but never love. And only now, when he was gray-haired, had he fallen in love properly, thoroughly, for the first time in his life. He and Anna Sergeyevna loved one another as people who are very close and intimate, as husband and wife. "'as dear friends love one another. "'It seemed to them that fate had intended them for one another, "'and they could not understand why she should have a husband and he a wife. while they were like two migrating birds, the male and the female, "'who had been caught and put into separate cages. "'They forgave one another all that they were ashamed of in the past.' in their present and felt that this love of theirs had changed them both. Formerly, in moments of melancholy, he had consoled himself by the first argument that came into his head, but now arguments were nothing to him. He felt profound pity, Desired to be sincere, tender. Oh, stop crying, my dearest, he said. You've had your cry. Now stop. Now, let us have a talk. Let us try and think what we are to do. And then they discussed their situation for a long time, trying to think how they could get rid of the necessity for hiding, deception, living in different towns, being so long without meeting. How were they to shake off these intolerable fetters? How? How? he repeated, clutching his head. How? And it seemed to them that they were within an inch of arriving at a decision. And that then a new, beautiful life would begin. And they both realized that the end was still far, far away. And that the hardest, the most complicated part... Was only just beginning. Good night.